Today's episode is brought to you by Jeff Alessandrelli's And Yet, published by Pank Books. And Yet is an innovative work of fiction that interrogates contemporary shyness, selfhood, and sexual mores, drawing out the particulars of each through personal history, cultural commentary, and the author's own restless imagination. And Yet builds off the work of authors as disparate as Michel Laris, Marguerite de Ross, and Kobo Abe, while quoting from and alluding to texts by Susan Sontag, Young Thug, Young Jean Lee, Cesare Pavese, Sylvia Plath, and Louise Glick, among others. Patrick Cottrell calls And Yet a profound and concise work of self-construction, and poet and editor Garrett Cables adds that the book reads more like a thriller instead of a hybrid, was it, investigating millennial dilemmas of sex, gender, and intimacy, one written in the grand tradition of poets' prose. Jeff Alessandrelli's And Yet is available now wherever books are sold. Today's episode is also brought to you by Nina Minya Powell's Magnolia, a collection of poems that pushes the borders of language and poetic forms and journeys across shifting luminescent cities in search of connection through pop culture, through food, through vivid colors, says Sally Wen Mao. Rarely has a poetry book given so much to savor in learning a language and considering a film by Wong Kar Wai or Hayao Miyazaki in biting a persimmon, in reading a subway map, in wandering the labyrinths of Eileen Chang's Shanghai, flying over time and space. At Chen Chen, Nina Minya Powell's is a poet who writes with simultaneous elegance and wildness, opening up lyric moments from an astonishing range of sources. I so love this poet's appetite. Magnolia is out on August 16th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Before we begin today's episode with writer, critic, classicist, and translator Daniel Mendelssohn, a conversation that at its core is about representation in art making and writing, about what methods, often counterintuitive ones, most effectively create works that just feel true and endure because of it, but also representation in other ways, how we represent memory when we memorialize, when we create a space to remember, and the political and ethical questions that arise with how we tell stories, whether on the page or restoring a monument, whether in a novel or a play, or how we tell the story of a historical violence perhaps even at the site of its occurrence. Before we begin this conversation, which is itself about digression and ring composition as technique, let me digress for a moment and say that if you enjoy today's conversation, or recent ones with Hernan Diaz or Ada Limon, or older ones with Alice Oswald, who also, like Mendelssohn, deeply engages with Homer and the questions and gestures contained in his epics, Consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter. There's a true abundance of possible rewards and gifts beyond the conversations themselves. 
Every listener receives resources related to each episode. For instance, the most interesting lectures or essays or interviews of Daniel Mendelssohn that informed my conversation today with him, and the various things we reference while we're talking, whether something from Proust or Zabald or Joyce or Homer. There's the bonus audio archive with contributions from everyone from Jory Graham to Rosemary Waldrop to Ayad Akhtar to Garth Greenwell, and the Tin House Early Readership Program, where you can receive 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. This only scratches the surface of what you can choose. To check it all out, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Daniel Mendelssohn. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer, critic, and translator Daniel Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn studied the classics at the University of Virginia and Princeton University, receiving a doctorate from the latter, and going on to publish his dissertation, Gender and the City in Euripides' Political Plays, with Oxford University Press. Since 1991, he's become one of America's most dynamic and prominent critics as a columnist for the New York Times Book Review, Harper's, and New York Magazine, as a contributing editor at Travel and Leisure, as a frequent contributor at The New Yorker, and since 2019 as editor-at-large of the New York Review of Books. He's also the director of the Robert B. Silvers Foundation, a charitable trust that supports writers of nonfiction, particularly long-form criticism and writing on art and culture. His essay collections include How Beautiful It Is and How Easily It Can Be Broken, the National Book Critics Circle Award finalist Waiting for the Barbarians, and most recently Ecstasy and Terror from the Greeks to Game of Thrones. As a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, and after 12 years of work and study, Mendelssohn published the collected poems of the Alexandrian poet Constantine Cavafy, which included the first-ever translation into English of his unfinished poems. Daniel Mendelssohn is also the Charles Ranlett Flint Professor of Humanities at Bard College, where he teaches literature, and is the writer of several remarkable memoirs including his debut, The Elusive Embrace, a memoir of family, history, sexual identity, classical myth, and literature, 
and the Lost, a search for six of six million that chronicles Mendelssohn's search for information about six relatives who perished in the Holocaust, again interbreeding family history with the classics, this time the first book of the Hebrew Bible, weaving his own drosh on the text alongside medieval and contemporary commentary on its passages. The Lost became an international bestseller, won the National Book Critics Circle Award, the National Jewish Book Award, and the Prix Médicis in France, was translated into 15 languages, and was optioned for film by Jean-Luc Godard. Mendelssohn followed this with a third memoir that weaves personal narrative with a sustained attention to classical texts, an odyssey, a father, a son, and an epic that chronicles his relationship with his father, a very non-literary retired research scientist, who enrolls in Mendelssohn's Odyssey Seminar at Bard. An Odyssey was chosen as a best book of the year by National Public Radio, Library Journal, Kirkus, and Christian Science Monitor, and won the Prix Méditerranée Étranger in France. So it would be an understatement to say it is a great pleasure to have Daniel Mendelssohn here to talk about his most recent book, Three Rings, A Tale of Exile, Narrative, and Fate just out in paperback by New York Review of Books, a book that isn't easily or neatly classified along his collections of essays or criticism, nor his braided books of memoir and classical meditation, a book that feels connected to both and yet something entirely and compellingly its own new thing. Three Rings is winner of the Prix de Meilleur Livre Étranger, or the Best Foreign Book of the Year Award in the essay category in France. Donna Rifkind for the Wall Street Journal says, if Three Rings were only a survey of circular narratives, it would be interesting enough. But he's after something more ambitious here. Adding memoir and biography, he reminds himself and his readers that books are vulnerable objects. They are all too easily banned, burned, buried among collapsing civilizations, and forgotten. Even if books engender other books, there are no guarantees for their own survival. This short but profoundly moving work clings with tenacity to a belief in the regenerative power of literature. Carmel Bird for the Sydney Review of Books adds, Three Rings is a reflection on the composition of its own text, a confessional memoir, a conscious performance of a literary device, a memorial to a family destroyed in the Holocaust, and a journey through literature that concentrates, among a wealth of others, on three exiled and wandering authors, Eric Auerbach, François Fenelon, and W.G. Sebald. Wandering is a word that crops up only ten times in the text, but it is in fact a key not only to the lives of those three writers, but to the whole narrative. Finally, Ayad Akhtar says, Contained in the interwoven circles of this slim labyrinthine book is a vision that encompasses the world. Part dirge, part memoir, part exegesis, all rhapsody, Mendelssohn's anatomy of literature's subtlest pleasures is itself that subtlest of literary pleasures, a masterpiece. Welcome to Between the Covers, Daniel Mendelssohn. Thank you, David. I'm happy to be here. So, one of the most remarkable and unlikely things about this book, I think, is that it is about digression and yet somehow results in your most concise and distilled book. And also that this, your shortest book, seems 
to contain all the others, that all these other books that are many hundreds of pages longer than this one, than this slim book, it's almost as if this book, this last book is the egg that gave birth to them all. And I, I wondered if you had that feeling yourself as a writer, that somehow um, it, it contains the larger books and also um, this strange notion of digression being the topic, and yet something feels very like crystalline and, and distilled in, in Three Rings. Yeah, well, thanks for a very provocative question. I have to think about this for a minute. I, to my mind, I, I feel that this book, rather than being the egg that gave birth to the others, although as you say, the others are contained in this new book. And in fact, they're all referred to in this new book in different ways, both overtly and covertly. I like better to think of it with the other word that you used, which is distilled. You know, I think many writers, not all writers, and now I'm not gonna speak as a writer, but as a critic, because I'm always wearing these two hats. When you look at the arcs of their careers, it, it's often a process of refinement. You know, one, one is constantly, one, you know, one is always thinking about the same things, I think. You know, all writers are usually thinking about the same things and in each book they go about it in a different way. But I think as you proceed through your career, the natural trajectory is one of refinement and distillation rather than expansion. Mm. I'm not talking about length necessarily, you know? And so I, you know, I've thought a lot obviously as a critic, but also myself as a writer about style and form over the years. And in each of my books, I've experimented, one could say with a different mode. You know, my first book was a kind of, lyric mode. Uh, I was thinking a lot about poetry. I talk a lot about poetry in that book. Um, the Elusive Embrace, which ostensibly is a kind of melange of family history and an inquest into the nature of sexual desire. I talk about myself as a young gay man in New York in the 1990s and how one's family history and how one's family affects the way that we desire things, uh, both specific and more generally. That was the first book in which I do this thing that has now become characteristic in which you describe very well in your introduction. And I know that's no easy task. Um, you know, this intertwining, I guess, is the word that comes up most often of these personal or intellectual or aesthetic reflections with analyses of ancient texts, whether classical, which of course is my background, or uh, in the case of the lost, as you mentioned, biblical texts. Um, but the texts I was thinking about in that book were largely poetic. And I think that influenced the, the sort of the voice of the book and also its structure, which is more fragmented than, than that of my subsequent books you know it, it it's the, the the narrative is sort of like a butterfly alighting on different passages different moments not necessarily in chronological order the lost is obviously a very big book both in size and in subject uh the holocaust book and there i was experimenting with the kind of epic mode i would say rather than a lyric mode 
and self-consciously, and a few critics caught this. I mean, people know that I'm a classicist. It is, it, it's a kind of expanded journey to the underworld, which is a sort of a typical element of many ancient epics, uh, starting with the Odyssey itself. And in an Odyssey, the book about me and my dad, me and my dad sort of living the Odyssey together, it was more novelistic, I would say. Uh, I think that the, the structure of it, the interrelationship between the personal narrative and the ancient text, which in that case was the Odyssey, is more seamless. You know, in the other books, I, I literally yo-yo back and forth. And in fact, in The Lost, as you know, the biblical analyses were in a different typeface to sort of alert you to the fact that you're now in a different mode. And I think that of, of my books, An Odyssey is the most novelistic. It plays that way. And in this book, and I, you know, I'm already reminded that I talk the way that I write, which is in circles. Uh, so now we finally get to your question, but I think with some necessary prelude. I mean, the form imposed the nature of the book. I, this book started out as a series of three lectures that I was asked to give at my alma mater, the University of Virginia. They have a big annual uh, humanities lecture. And I, for years, had been thinking in a not terribly organized way about what you might call some outtakes from the Odyssey book. While I was writing an Odyssey, which was published in 2017, there was a lot of material that, as so to speak, ended up on the cutting room floor. You know, at a certain point in that book, I had delved into the history of people's reading of the Odyssey. You know, how have people read the Odyssey through the years? Who transmitted it? You know, what, who were the readers? Who were the, what was the fan fiction that was you know, generated by the Odyssey, of which there has been a great deal, uh, uh, as you know, from reading Three Rings. Um, and it, it, it ended up not being right for that book. It, it, it was too digressive. You know, the thing about digression is it can sometimes, you know, you lose the thread or it goes too far. And, and, and so I saved a lot of it. And then when they asked me to do these lectures at UVA, I said, you know, I should revisit some of that. Maybe it'll be handy. And while I was working on the Odyssey book, I had kept thinking of these three figures who I th think of as Odyssean writers for different reasons. Eric Auerbach, the great German Jewish critic who fled Hitler in the 30s and ended up in Istanbul of all places uh, where he wrote his great magnum opus, Mimesis, uh, the representation of reality in Western literature, which opens with a with a whole chapter that analyzes the Odyssey's circular narrative technique called ring composition. Uh, Francois Fenelon, this 17th century French archbishop who was a tutor to one of Louis XIV's grandsons and who wrote this crazy fan fiction based on the Odyssey, which imagines a whole new set of adventures for Odysseus's son, Telemachus, and was in, meant to be a kind of uh, ethical, instruction manual for this young prince. And then W.G. Zabald, as you mentioned, who is very interested as I am in sort of rambling, ostensibly meandering narratives. And in fact, in Zabald, there's a kind of over-determination because as you know, many of Zabald's characters are themselves wanderers. They're literally taking walks and getting lost and 
wandering. And I just somehow thought these three fellows were connected mostly by the Odyssey, but the more I thought about them, the more I thought there were other things. But because these began as lectures, they necessarily were each, you know, whatever, 45, 50 minutes long, not more than an hour. And so I had to condense my own thinking in order to get what I wanted to say into, you know, into the right time slot. And that's really why, I mean, these lectures were greatly elaborated and rewritten for the, you know, for the process of uh, 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 becoming a book. But I think for the first time I was forced to, to compress myself in a way that I had never done before. And once I said, oh, you know, I'm going to turn this into a book, I had no desire to make it bigger, really. I mean, it's a little longer than the lectures and heavily rewritten with a lot of new material, but I just found that I was doing this thing, which I began by talking about, which is as writers get older, I think they want to strip away more or, or refine more or distill more their basic subjects. And I found that thanks to the form in, with, in which these, these thoughts had, had first germinated, I was able to do it in a highly compressed, distilled way that I had never really engaged in before. So I think yeah. this is, there's a, even though it looks a lot like my other books, technically, I think this is quite different actually, as yeah. you, you know, which goes to the heart of the question that you asked, it is different. And I think it has to do with, you know, you get to a certain point where you have more confidence in your ability to say what you want to say, and you don't need to reiterate, repeat, draw your reader's attention to, you start trusting your reader more and you start trusting yourself more. And I do think that's what happened in this book. To stay with what feels like still like a mystery, even as you explain it, of how everything outside the book somehow is in the book at the same time. I, I wanted to start with a, a lecture you gave on the translations of Konstantin Kavafi, mm -hmm. um, who is never mentioned in Three Rings, but obviously is a, is a big part of your life as a translator. And yet, in this talk you gave, you, you begin by placing us at his deathbed. He's dying of laryngeal cancer. He can't speak. The last thing he does before he dies is he draws this circle with a dot in the middle um, as his last communication. And then probably he also, you mentioned, dies on his birthday. So in a sense, his death is, is, this, is this other circle, like the one he just drew. Um, you give a lecture from this image talking about the three ways he tries to reconcile the periphery and the center, the circumference and the axis, uh, those being the spatial, the temporal, and the erotic, or the geographic, the historic, and the intimate. And you talk about how geographically Alexandria, his home, was once central and is now sort of a backwater. Historically, you show how he focused on a span of time and antiquity that most people studying ancient Greece would overlook. And in the erotic, you speak to Kavafi's homosexuality. Uh, but you go on to say that he was a mediocre, over-perfumed poet who worked in these three spheres, but only when he had a crisis and figured out a way to relate the three 
the spatial, the temporal, and the erotic in a concentric way, did he then become a great poet? So in essence, you put forth a three-ring theory for Cavafy. Hmm. And it made me wonder about, I guess, this chicken and egg metaphor with regards to the three rings, the book. Obviously, Cavafy doesn't make it into the book, and yet understanding him and his greatness for you is through this lens of three rings. Um, that your interest in ring composition must extend beyond the improbable amount of history and literature that does make it into your latest book. And, and I just was hoping maybe you could speak to speak to that a little bit. It's a wonderful question. And I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for it because it bespeaks the very deep reading of my various pieces. I hadn't even made the connection between that Cavafy essay, which I must say I'd completely forgotten about, or the lecture rather, and I, I can't remember where I gave it, but now I want to go back to it because there may be gold in them, Thar Hills. Um, <laughs> um, I, I just want to start with Cavafy. You know, it's, uh, I want to start with a tangential consideration that nonetheless you've raised, and I think is an interesting one when people talk about their own writing, which is, you know, we when we study literature, particularly chronologically or diachronically, as we said back in the 1980s, um, one invariably thinks about influences, you know, X influence Y, Y influence Z, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I you know, the older I get and the, I write a lot about writers and I often do big pieces which are kind of career overviews in many ways. So I'm always interested in how people develop. We've already talked about this a little bit, but influence often works in strange ways, not obvious ways. I might say as a parenthesis within a parenthesis, I just read an article about my own work, which was all about the influence by a non-American scholar, which was about the influence of Puritan memoirs on my work. And I mortified to say, I don't think I've ever read a Puritan <laughs> memoir. And I think this, this non-American critic had some notion that all Americans read a given set of literature. I mean, I may have read, you know, The Pilgrim's Progress or some, I don't even know. But, but I'm thinking about this in terms of Kabafi and the way that influence exerts itself in, in non-linear ways. Let's call it. And of course, non-linear is my middle name. Um, so when I was writing The Lost, which as you described, is in a, was an attempt over many years to sort of understand the circumstances in which my mother's aunt, uncle, and four cousins were murdered in the Holocaust, I realized after the fact that I was thinking about Kavafi the whole time. I was I was working on this Kavafi translation, as you mentioned, for a dozen years, because I was doing a lot of other, other things while I was doing that. It's, I'm not that slow. A thing about Kavafi that had worked its way into the fabric of my sensibility was how history often erases the little people. You know, Kavafi devotes a number of his so-called historical poems, poems set in the Hellenistic or late antique or Byzantine worlds about how he's sort of 
reverses the telescope and will look at history through the wrong end of the telescope. That's the only way I can describe it. So for example, there's a wonderful short poem called 31 BC in Alexandria. Now, if you're a classicist or interested in history, 31 BC is a very big date. It's the date that Octavian defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra, which had may be the single most influential event in European history. Um, because it was a triumph of the West over the East, uh, and it really determined many, many, many things to come. And Cavafy writes about the day that the palace, the, you know, the, the palace spokespeople in Alexandria announced the news of the outcome of this battle. Of course, like all PR people, they lie, and they say that this is the palace in Alexandria, in other words, Cleopatra's palace, uh, uh, and there's a great announcement about how Antony and Cleopatra have been victorious. But that's not even the funny part of the poem. The funny part of the poem is all of this, which is, as I've described, an immensely important historical event, is narrated through the eyes of a, of a merchant who just happens to be in town that day, who's trying to, you know, is trying to sell his wares at market. And he doesn't understand what the big hubbub is. He's come from some provincial place. And you know, and I always think about that because the way that history affects ordinary people is of great interest to Cavafy, who's also interested in the losers of history. Many of his poems, if not most of them, are devoted to the kings who had to abdicate or the, the losing generals or the, you know, the people, one could say, whom history has washed over whether it's the losers or the insignificant people, all of those words in, in quotation marks, of course. And of course, what the lost is about is trying to find out how this very vast historical event, the, the Holocaust affected six particular people. And I only realized after the fact that my thinking about what I was doing as I tracked down the last remaining survivors and tried to get the story of what had happened to my six relatives about whom we had only ever heard that they were, quote, killed by the Nazis, end quote, and nothing more. And I just realized that this years long reading of Kavafi had attuned me to a kind of story that I might not have been interested in telling if I hadn't been reading Kavafi. Now that's influence, but not in the usual way you think about influence, you know. And so to come back to this original material that you mentioned, you know, Kavafi too, you know, you're talking about concentric circles and this brilliant, I mean, if I were a novelist, I could not have made up a better symbol you know, if I were writing a novel about the death of Kavafi, this business of drawing a circle and putting a period in the middle, I, it's too good to be true, yes. especially both for Kavafi and for me, who am so interested in, you know, this so-called ring composition, the way that you start a story, seem to digress, seem to digress within your digression, blah, 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 always, however, returning to the point of origin with a greatly enhanced story because you've gotten so much background through these digressions and that's what ring composition is. So if I might myself return to the image with which you began, you know, Kavafi too, I realize after the fact is also because he's an ironist of history, he's attuned to the ironies of history, the way that history makes fools of our expectations or our grandiose plans or, you know, 
he's also interested in perhaps unintended coincidences. And I think that also worked its way into my mind. There's a wonderful poem called Nero's Deadline. And it's actually a true story, which is reported in, in uh, Suetonius's Life of Nero, which is that he went to the Delphic Oracle when he was 30, which is to say a year before he was murdered, uh, to ask, uh, you know, ask the Oracle about his life. And the Oracle said, beware the age of 73. And so this poem is Nero, you know, it's in Nero's head as he receives his oracle. And he says to himself, oh, that's great. I'm only 30. You know, I've got years to worry about, you know, dying, blah, blah, blah. Right now, I really want to get back to the theater and the gymnasia and all of that. And the last lines of the poem are, meanwhile, Galba, who was the general who was eventually going to lead the rebellion that caused Nero to kill himself, was preparing his army, the rebellious army, Galba, who was 73 years old. So that, that kind of punchline, you know, depends on a kind of coincidence or circularity in, and, and I think that had to have also been working its way into my thinking, you know, I'm just fascinated by this. And as you know, Three Rings is particularly interested or as interested because it's ostensible subject is, okay, here's these writers, all of whom has a, a, a certain digressive technique or who are interested in this technique of elaborate digressiveness. And yet I would say uh, the real subject of Three Rings is coincidence in a way. You know, if you circle enough, everything becomes connected. You know, and and the my narrative is itself uh, ultimately based on a very unlikely stream of of circumstances that connects Homer through Fenelon to Auerbach in a most unexpected way, which I won't reveal because it's sort of the punchline of the whole book. But even on a smaller scale, I'm interested in that sort of circle with the dot in the middle, the perfect coincidence, the perfect concentricity in unexpected ways. So just to give people an idea of a small one. So one of the main or a main theme is, you know, the, the cover, beautiful cover on the New York Review books, paperback of this book is a very dreamy, moody photograph of Istanbul. And Istanbul keeps coming up in my narrative in all different ways. As I mentioned, it's the place to which Auerbach ran away um, because of Hitler, but it's also the home of a very interesting Turk who translated Fenelon's fan fiction, The Adventures of Telemachus. Um, it keeps cropping up. It, keeps, it comes up in a discussion of Proust and a certain diplomat he had a crush on, which becomes a very important point in my Fenelon chapter, who was posted to Istanbul. So Istanbul keeps popping up. It also pops as an important point in the history of the Jews, uh, which is another thread of my book because I do talk about the Holocaust uh, in different ways in this new book. And I talk about the fact how many of the Jews who were exiled in 1492 by Ferdinand and Isabella went east to the Ottoman Empire where they were welcomed. Uh, and that begins a thread about religious persecution and part of that thread is how Fenelon himself got a great start in life because he was a head of a school 
for Protestant girls who were essentially being forced to convert to Catholicism under Louis XIV. And that gets me into a discussion of how all of the Huguenots, the French Protestants who didn't want to convert, ran away to Prussia, where the king of Prussia, who was a Protestant, built a special school for these French emigres called the Lycée Francais. That turns out to be the school that Auerbach went to. You know, so little things, you know, is it important? Maybe not. But when you start looking at things in the circle, the dot in the middle of the circle mode, you start seeing these connections. And that leads to a larger narrative interest of mine that has to do with the nature of fiction, I would say, which is also a subject of this new book, which is what do we mean when something is too good to be true? Mm. You know, if you say a coincidence is so amazing, no one would believe it. We, we talk in these terms all the time. Oh, if it were in a novel, they wouldn't believe it, right? But it really happened. All of the bizarre coincidences I talk about in my book are too good to be true, you know? And so what, what about verisimilitude is it that makes us want things not to be too perfectly concentric, not to be too perfectly structured because they start, they seem to stop feeling like life, yeah. which, so we often tell ourselves, doesn't have a perfect structure, needs to be massaged into a perfect structure in order to make a good book. And yet what I keep saying in this book is sometimes life creates the most amazing coincidences that that are themselves so perfect, you wouldn't believe them if you were reading about them in a novel. And I think to some extent, this book is an investigation of that problem. I love that. And I want to return to that later um, after we sort of unpack this question of optimistic and pessimistic re in relationship to language. But one more beat with Kavafi that I feel like is a, you know, maybe this is a stretch as a connection, but you talk about his crisis and then the way he's able to set these things into three rings. And there's this, a greatness that comes out of these, these concerns somehow being united. And I, I feel like you've just described all these coincidences. And I'm sure if, if someone didn't hear the first part of our conversation there, they'd be thinking this book must be 3000 pages long, not, uh, not 150 pages, which is, it's like a magic trick. Really? What, I think it's 115. It's yeah. a magic trick what you've done. I think it's, it's really remarkable, but, but in the three rings among so many other things, you describe a crisis that you had. And I'm not saying it's the same crisis as Kavafi, but after the lost, you, after your book about the Holocaust, you describe your crisis as aporia, a lack of a path, that you couldn't find a way forward in how to organize your book. The Odyssey, the irony in that being that the way you figure out how to organize the, the Odyssey is with ultimately, like Kavafi with the three rings, is with ring composition, which wasn't the first thing you thought of, even though in a sense you were writing about the great example of ring composition, Homer. Um, but but tell us a little bit about like I loved the part in the in in Lost, for instance, where you recount Herodotus and how in order to tell the story of the Greek victory over the Persian Empire, feels like he first needs to tell the entire history of Persia, which in order to tell the entire history of Persia means he has to devote an entire chapter to Egypt, because Egypt at the time was part of the Persian Empire. Right. But but the but the Greek sense is that digression isn't really digression because it comes back, 
but also that digression isn't distraction, that somehow the circumambulation, the wandering that becomes a circling is enhancing something about the center. A couple of thoughts, David. So first of all, when we talk about digression in a literary text, it's always sort of disingenuous to some extent, because you know, an author who puts a digression in a work is not really digressing. The digression is there for a purpose. So it's a purposeful wandering away from the ostensible topic, but it's it's not meandering. You know, digression is not not the same as meandering, a kind of a careless wandering in any direction you happen to feel like. So digression, when we talk about it in a literary, literary context, is always purposeful, well thought out. The, the great example uh, that I talk about, and in fact that Auerbach talks about, is a, is a climactic moment in Homer's Odyssey. Uh, Odysseus is back home finally after 20 years, but he's in disguise because he doesn't know who's been loyal and who hasn't, and he's testing everyone. And he's in his own palace, and he, as a matter of ritual courtesy, he's given a foot bath by an elderly slave, uh, a woman. And as she gives him this bath, she recognizes a scar on his leg, which is a telltale scar. Everyone knows that Odysseus, when he was a teenager, was wounded in a boar hunt, and he has this very distinctive scar. So his identity is revealed. At that moment, instead of staging a tearful reunion between the old nurse and Odysseus, whom she's now positively identifies, Homer stops the action dead in its track and has not one but two very elaborate digressions. One is the story of the boar hunt. How did he get it? What was happening? And that digression about his teenage years goes back further, it turns out, to the moment when he was born, which has to do with how he got his name, which has to do with why 17 years later he went on the boar hunt. And then we go back to the boar hunt, and then we finally get back to the moment where the nurse recognizes the scar. That's a perfect example of ring composition, so-called, which is the term we classicists use. It's like loops within loops within the narrative. Now, that's ostensibly a digression, and in fact, one for which Auerbach, in his study of Western literature, has very little patience. But to come back to your point, what we, the audience, have heard by listening to this going back in time, not once but twice, is we get crucial in information about Odysseus, who he was as a young man, which is very different from the man we now know, why he got this very strange name that he has, which comes from a Greek verb that means to both cause and suffer pain. Um, so we're getting crucial information. And, and I cite that example, not only because it keeps coming up in my own work, as you say, even in The Lost, ostensibly about the Holocaust, I'm already interested in this business of how you tell a story and what you choose to include, you know, but it's very purposeful. So I think, you know, when we talk about, when we use these terms, we have to sort of always keep an eyebrow raised, you know, and as I said, sometimes digression does go too far. Mm -hmm. You know, if you grasp too much and you get too far away from the subject or it no longer illuminates the main narrative, you've you've screwed it, you know, you screwed it up and that can happen. Right. Um, so sorry, I got lost in my own digression here talking about the Odyssey, but remind me of the the main thrust of your question that you were just asking. 
Well, let me just extend it a little bit because what you just described, Homer will use a, a formulaic line that he repeats that sort of bookends the digression. So it sort of signals that we've returned. And I think one of the the great pleasures of reading Three Rings is that you do this too with the opening line of the book. The opening line being, a stranger arrives in an unknown city after a long voyage, something that we'll encounter periodically as we read. And with a great amount of pleasure every time that we return to this line, which takes on new resonances as the book progresses. And one of the things that you do that I don't think Homer's doing, which is similar, I think, to The Lost in the sense that The Lost is about relatives that are of little historical importance from a town of, right. of little historical importance and that you're sent, you're centering people on the periphery and this stranger arriving in an unknown city after a long voyage, you leave him as a cipher for a really long time. Um, he could be any number of people from any number of periods. He could be a Jew or a Muslim fleeing from Spain. And you say this, he could be a Greek fleeing Constantinople he could be any number of uh, forced migrants at times of upheaval. So there's a way in which it's the book sort of also in another way evokes a hundred other books it could be. Um, that here we have the person it is. Eventually it becomes the person it is. But this person is is one of many people it could be. Yes. Well, with that, so you're right. I mean, it's it's not quite Homeric, my use of this figure, but I knew what I wanted to talk about in the book for the most part. I mean, sometimes you surprise yourself, of course, but, you know, I knew I wanted to write about this, as it were, wandering narrative technique that looks like wandering, but always comes home at the end, so to speak. I wanted to write about these three particular writers who were also interested in this technique or used this technique, right? So Auerbach studies it and Fenelon and Zebald use it in quite different ways. I was also interested in the fact that each of my three authors was himself exiled or forced to wander, either a voluntary exile or an involuntary exile. Auerbach was a refugee from Hitler. Fenelon was finally exiled from court because the book that he ended up writing, The Adventures of Telemachus, angered the king because it was a not too thinly disguised attack on Louis' autocratic regime. And Zebald, as many listeners are probably aware, uh, was sort of self-exiled from Germany and, and struggled with the weight of German guilt after the war. And so I wanted to think of a figure you know, uh, I think people also know who have read either the Iliad or the Odyssey that repetition is an important part of Homeric technique, those sort of stock phrases, stock epithets for the different characters or gods. I wanted to have a sort of figure who was blank but could be applicable to any of my people, starting with Odysseus. It really began as an attempt in a single paragraph to describe a sort of every man, Odysseus as a kind of every man, either a wanderer, voluntary, or an exile, you know. So I'm thinking of this person who's been wandering, who washes up in some new country, he goes into some new abode where he now has to live, he's waiting for his wife and child. So that, the bare bones of that is a pretty accurate description of Odysseus. 
But the more I thought about it, almost surprising myself, it was also a good description of Auerbach, who in fact, like Odysseus, had one child and a wife that he was waiting for to be reunited with, and Fenelon and Zebald, but also the characters in these people's works. And I just, I just decided that weirdly, <laughs> The, the image that presented itself to me was I, I've been a swimmer all my life and, and I, I just happened to, I've just finished a new translation of the Odyssey uh, um, for University of Chicago Press. And there are so many, because he's always being shipwrecked, you know, there are so many wonderful depictions of him bobbing in the sea and sighting land, you know, and then losing sight of it. And I wanted this little paragraph a stranger arrives, you know, blah, 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 that, that first line and the accompanying paragraph to be sort of like the sight of dry land to a swimmer bobbing up in the water. I wanted to keep reappearing, but of course, and this is how ring composition is supposed to work. Every time that paragraph comes up, sometimes at the, I mean, it, it, it is the beginning of each of the three sections of the book, but it, it surfaces at other times too you, because of what I've been describing, you know, by the time you get, for example, to the end of the first part, which is the Auerbach part, you think, oh, that's not just Odysseus, it's Auerbach. And then, you know, by the time you get through the um, Fenelon chapter, which ends up being about Proust, because Proust is the ultimate digressive writer, I think, um, you know, you think, oh, that's kind of Fenelon also. So I just, I want, I never wanted to name this person because his applicability would be limited in that case, but he becomes a kind of symbol. And I just, it felt right to me. It was very effective, I should say, when I gave the lectures as oral presentations. And, and as you know, I mean, as a classicist who works on Homer, among other things, orality and the, the tension between oral delivery and reading is something I think about a great deal. And we all know when we tell stories that it can be very useful. And I'm sure this is how this began in the in the dark ages, you know, when Homer was concocting this thing. You know, it's effective to keep coming back, to keep returning, to repeat. It's a it's a place that people can hang on to in a long oral narrative. You know, so I was thinking about all these things when I was writing this, and it just sort of it worked when I was giving the lectures and, and I didn't see any reason why it wouldn't work, you know, when it became a written document. Well, as you, you say in Three Rings, that the great work by Auerbach, the, who is the father of comparative literature and a scholar of Dante's poetry, Mimesis, which is about the civilization he's just fled, a book written outside of or on the periphery of Europe from Istanbul, and a book that engages with the representation of reality in Western literature. As you've said, it's of interest to readers of the Odyssey because it opens with this meditation on Odysseus's identifying scar that Homer digresses from and returns, and, and that he lays out the Greek argument that um, the exhaustiveness of this creates a vividness, but um, as you suggested, he's not convinced by this. He, he, um, he compares this to Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac from a storytelling perspective, and he asserts that 
contrary to the Greeks who say by not leaving anything out, things become more vivid, that the exhaustiveness can be an obstacle to a persuasive representation of reality, which also I think goes back to this mystery around um, too good to be true. Yeah. Uh, how for Auerbach, paradoxically, obscurity is an advantage to mimicry, to literary mimicry. And he remarks about just how much is left out in Hebrew storytelling. And he finds this productive, the, the, uh, the stuff that's not said. Um, that it forces the reader to probe, to think harder about motivations, and that it's closer to life because in life we also don't know everything about events and people, even people really close to us, even events that have happened to us. Um, right. And you describe these two modes as optimistic and pessimistic. Presumably, I'm guessing you're calling the Greek optimistic because of their faith in the power of language to, to describe and pessimistic for the Hebrew because language is by nature going to always fall short. Um, but you've called yourself optimistic in this regard. And I guess I wanted to know whether I'm characterizing this debate correctly, but also if you could speak to your optimism. So thank you. It's a, it's a, it's a big question that connects a lot of dots. And I think you beautifully characterize our box problem with Homer, you know, I should say, uh, for the benefit of listeners that I turned to Auerbach's text, which I had read in graduate school and actually read the first time as an undergraduate at the University of Virginia studying classics with Jenny Strauss Clay, uh, who's a great Homerist. And she first, I think as an undergraduate, uh, I had read this at her urging the famous first chapter of Mimesis by Auerbach in which he talks, we contrast Greek narrative with biblical narrative. So you have the already the, the sort of establishment of Athens and Jerusalem as the two great poles, which of course are my two great poles too, you know, as a Jewish family historian and as a classicist. And I was having this great crisis writing an odyssey, the story that, you know, the book about me and my dad reading the odyssey together, because I was having trouble organizing the narrative, which originally was arranged sort of chronologically. You know, he took my course, then we went on this crazy odyssey cruise together, and then he got sick and died all within a year. And a friend of mine who's an editor said, you've got to reorganize this and you have to you can't have one thing after the other. It's just not working. You have to find a way to sort of weave it together. And I thought, oh, I'll look at, at Auerbach and ring composition, you know, and what I had forgotten, this is something else I'm interested in, the tricks that memory plays on you. What I had forgotten is that Auerbach doesn't like ring composition, given his interest in how literature makes things feel real, which one could say is his aim in this book. So he says, well, you know, this, narrative technique of endless digression and nested digressions within digressions potentially can tell you everything about a given subject, right? And I just gave the example of Odysseus's scar, which is the example he uses as sort of the great example of ring composition. So you get the moment of identification, but then you get this history of Odysseus and what he was like as a baby, what he was like as... So Auerbach's point is, because of the potential of potentially endless rings within rings, you could say everything about a given subject. But he doesn't like that because he said it's essentially, and I'm gonna compress a very complicated argument into a 
too short of a space, but you know, basically life in life, you don't know everything about everything. You know, omniscience is only belongs to the deity, right? And so that he doesn't think that the Homeric narrative is as quote unquote realistic, doesn't feel as real as, and then as you said, he uses the example in Genesis of the description of Abraham's um, uh, aborted sacrifice of Isaac, where he goes to the place of sacrifice, for example, but unlike Homer, who would have told you every step of the way, what hotel he stayed at, how was dinner, you know, <laughs> what their luggage looked like, who packed, you know, who they met along the way, blah, blah, blah. There are these omissions and gaps. And we know that from reading uh, the Hebrew Bible, that the, the style is is sort of often just jointed. There are great gaps. You don't know a lot. Auerbach has a very interesting idea since representation is a very crucial element in Hebrew theology, right? The deity itself cannot be represented. So Auerbach thinks the narrative avoidance of over description is a kind of function of the Hebrew distaste for representing the deity himself which I thought is fascinating. Mm. So anyway, so I, in my book, Three Rings, am interested in this because it is the poles between which I myself oscillate quite often, not just as a Jewish thinker and a classicist, you know, a, a scholar of Greek literature, but in my own narrative. Um, and as you say, I, I characterize the Greek as optimistic for the you beautifully described why, because of the faith and the power of language to represent, which is a great Greek achievement. And one could say of which ring composition itself is a, is a great example, right? You can describe everything if you had enough time and paper, presumably, you know, and the Hebrew uh, as pessimistic. You know, you can't, no matter how much you try to say, you'll never depict reality in all of its richness. And, you know, as a parallel to that, you know, if you be belong to a faith in which the deity cannot be represented, cannot be described, and in fact, whose name cannot be uttered, uh, in which the name, you know, when you're, if you read Hebrew, when you see the name of God, you say another word, you know, so it's a kind of a displacement. So I describe that as the pessimistic view. And it's very interesting you raise this, David, because I got a very interesting from letter email from a smart reader who said, I was very taken by the fact that you described the Hebrew as pessimistic and the Greek as optimistic, because that's not necessarily how I would see it. And I thought that was so interesting. And it says something about me that I would think the Greek mode was optimistic, I guess, because I'm a certain kind of writer. And I do believe, you know, in, in and I'm finally answering your question about optimism, you know, I, I do believe in the power of literature to convey a real sense of what life not only is like, but what it's for. And, you know, I would say that makes me an optimist about literature. And in fact, if I may say, and if it doesn't sound too grandiose, I would say my whole career as a writer for, you know, almost 35 years now of publishing is, you know, my belief that looking at the literature of the past 
can reveal important truths about the way that we live and we conduct our lives, you know, and I'm not just talking about classical literature about which obviously I've written a lot and which I always thread through my own writing, but you know, these, I think of these many pieces I've written for the New Yorker, reevaluating, you know, writers of the past, whether it's Theodore Fontana or Sappho or French poets, or, you know, I'm very interested in, in what literature does for us. And I believe that literature does things for us. So I do think I'm an optimist. One of, one of the great things about preparing for this conversation is that both for the hardback and paperback, you were doing these incredible conversations for your book, ones that I'd encourage people to go seek out with James Wood, with Edouard Louis, with Ayad Akhtar, with Garth Greenwell, and many others. But there's there's one comment that jumped out to me by Becca Rothfeld when she asked you, why do you consider the Greek style optimistic rather than paranoid? Which I thought was just a, a wonderfully provocative question to you. But um, I don't know what she meant exactly by that. As far as I remember, she actually used that word also in her review. Becca reviewed the book, in a, I mean, not at great length in the New York Times uh, book review. And I think her point was that when, as was the case when I was writing this book, you're interested in pointing out these strange coincidences in history, in real life. You know, it can make you paranoid, as we know, when you're looking for, I mean, this is the whole history of the internet. You know, if you're looking for crazy connections, you'll find them, basically. I think it actually, all kidding aside, speaks to a phenomenon that most writers and for all I know, other kinds of creative people know about and we joke about, or even academics who were friends of mine talk, you know, when you're working on a project, everything starts to be about your project. You know, whatever you notice somehow has this amazing connection to what you're working on. And it's something informally we sort of kibitz about, but I think it, kibitzing aside, it speaks to a reality of how the mind works, which is when you become attuned to a certain subject or theme or epic or biography or whatever, you start to see things that are connected to it that you would not have noticed before. So I always use the analogy of, you know, tinted glasses, you know, if you're wearing pink tinted glasses, you're going to certain things are going to pop out in a way that would not have done so uh, otherwise, and certain things also disappear, I might add. So I think I remember Becca in her review, and then again, in the conversation we we taped together uh, for a book event about this book, mentioned this word paranoid, because it can make you crazy. You know, I think there's a kind of truth to that. Um, you know, when you when you start thinking everything is connected and nothing is random, you know, it's, it's one definition of craziness. Um, the question that the creative artist has to make is what is the line between art and madness? And as we all know, that can be a blurry line sometimes. But it is, I think her her comment is speaks to in a different way about that thing I was talking about before, which is what do we mean when something's too good to be true? When is a coincidence, you know, sometimes a coincidence is like, oh, isn't that funny? And sometimes it's scary and dark. You know, 
And so I think when you start thinking about how, as it were, life writes circular narratives sometimes. So I referred to this before, at the end of my book, I point to a remarkable coincidence that I stumbled on really when I was researching the Odyssey book that connects Fenelon in the 17th and 18th century to ultimately to Auerbach um, through the medium of this fabulously interesting 19th century Turkish guy who translated Fenelon and who himself in a moving way was connected to Auerbach, although none of these three people were aware of each other. And, you know, so that's a kind of coincidence, which you could say, oh, it has this sort of pleasing symmetry that we would want from a novel that connects the dots, you know, to use a kind of obvious example, you know, Dickens, the way that in Dickens, every character turns out to be connected in some way, and all the action is determined by these connections. So... I guess Becca's what she's interested in is, you know, when do the when does pleasing symmetry become scary over determination? In other words, paranoia, you know, and that that I think of, you know, as a narrative question, you know, which is to say, when is a narrative realistic and when does it just get crazy? That's a great place talking about overdetermination to segue to to a question I had about Joyce. Because with your great interest in, in Greek versus Hebrew storytelling and this through line in your, in your work, but also distilled in this specific book, Three Rings, as, as well as your interest in the Odyssey and the Holocaust, on the other hand, there's the conspicuous absence of James Joyce's Ulysses, I think, which would seem like the obvious, on the surface at least, the obvious book to think of around Greek and Hebrew with Joyce taking the 20-year the journey of Odysseus and finding a way to make it a single day in Dublin and have it contain the entire epic, but most notably to take a heroic figure and replace him with the least heroic one, a wandering marginal Jew in the most un-Jewish of places. Somehow he too is bringing the periphery into the center and he's bringing the Greek and the Hebrew together. So he seems like a natural fit as the person to be meditating on fan fiction around the Odyssey. But, yeah. el but elsewhere you've, you've said, and I'm just going to quote you, what spoils Ulysses for me each time is the oppressive elusiveness, the wearyingly overdetermined referentiality, the heavy constructedness of it all. Reading the book for me is never a rich and wonderful journey filled with marvels and surprises, the experience I want from a large and important novel. It's more like being on one of those Easter egg hunts you went on as a child. You constantly feel yourself being managed, being carefully steered in the direction of effortfully planted treats, which of course makes them not feel very much like treats at all. The tip-off for me are the Gilbert and Lenati schemas, now included in most editions, the roadmaps to the books that Joyce concocted for friends, minutely indicating the novel's themes, its labored structures, the Homeric analogies. It's as if Joyce were both the author of his book and the future complete grad student who's trying to decipher it. I love that. And... Um, but I wonder, is this a different issue than Greek versus Hebrew? 
or optimistic versus pessimistic? Or is this a, is this overdeterminedness? Because it feels like maybe it is very much, um, Mm. is Joyce being more Greek than the Greeks when he should have been more Hebraic? Um, or is this something else? And is this the wrong framing for the, the failures of, of Joyce? No, no, I have to say, David, I hadn't, I think it's the right framing. I'm, and I'm grateful to you to pointing it out. I should say that I got into a great tiff with Joyce Carol Oates over that comment about Ulysses, who's a friend of mine, I should add, and was a friendly tiff. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, I mean, all kidding aside, I, that, those comments were also uh, in the larger context although I didn't mention this, uh, you know, that to my mind, the Joyce of Dubliners to me is the greatest and most authentic Joyce. It seems much more natural to me. Uh, and I think it's his best work actually. And I know most people don't agree with me about that. Um, but I think to some extent, thinking about my problem, quote unquote, with Joyce, and I, I should say I've taught Ulysses and, you know, I've enjoyed it tremendously, but it, you know, maybe it is a Greek versus Hebrew problem, you know, maybe, and it's funny for me to say this, and you'll appreciate the irony as a self-identified Greek and optimist, you know, that I find it too overdetermined, you know, it doesn't, there's a kind of naturalness that I think, you see the ultimate achievement of the digressive narrative is to feel accidental, but to be overdetermined, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. I think that's the, in fact, one could say that is the great agenda of naturalistic fiction, you know, so that things feel like they're casual, and accidental because that's how we experience life. But of course, you know, the author is plotting all of this to, so that things will happen in a certain way. And as a reader of and enjoyer of naturalistic fiction, I find that those works in which the determinedness, the structuredness the authorialness is cleverly hidden, you know, so that when the structure and the determination and the punchline happens, it feels you have that sort of aha moment. And I do feel that, it, you know, as I said, in Ulysses, I often feel, I, I not only feel, but I see the structuring hand at work, which is not something I enjoy. Um, but I think it's helpful, you know, what you've just said, David, is very helpful for me <laughs> in analyzing my own Joyce issue, which I guess I do have, um, you know, while, of course, admiring the greatness of this object, which is an indisputable fact, as far as I'm concerned, but it's not my, I mean, to me, maybe the helpful analogy, and here I'm just taking a leaf from your from your book, because I think it's an interesting question to have raised, is to compare Joyce and Proust, who are contemporaries, doing, you know, interested in the same things at the same time, both each of whom has created a monumentally great 20th century fictional object, 
both each very different to the other, of course. Um, see, I can enjoy Proust in a way that I don't quite as much enjoy Joyce. And it'd be interesting for me, I'm not sure I'm gonna have an answer for you, but it's very interesting to think of the issue as a Greek versus Hebrew problem, you know, before I forget, because you've raised such an interesting subject, I think, and I may be wrong, actually, because this is just off the top of my head, but I would say, because Proust's narration has the quality of an inner monologue that goes on and on and feels more accidental, although actually this, the, the second part of my book, Three Rings, which, as I said, starts with Fenelon and the adventures of Telemachus, but ends up by discussing ring composition and Proust. Proust is very cannily structured and very tightly structured, despite its unbelievably meandering look, you know, that to my mind, he does a better job of hiding, you know, hiding his hand, so to speak. Um, that may be part of why I enjoy Proust more. I don't know. Um, anyway, go ahead. I, it's such an interesting topic and it might, you know, it might help cure me of my problems. So, you know, <laughs> well, I wasn't trying to cure you, but no, but I want to be, but thinking of you saying the irony of you being optimistic around language, but wishing Joyce had been more pessimistic, let's say, um, I like the way ultimately as you, as we press further into this, polarity between the Greek and the Hebrew, you, you end up finding the opposite in each other. You, mm. They start to feel like they get confused or, or more complicated and nuanced. For instance, that the absences in the pessimistic mode, as Auerbach says, require the reader to probe further. And this creates criticism. So like we could look at the Talmud in relationship to the Torah as being a very Greek-like text, a very digressive, associative, and sort of ridiculously exhaustive accretion of language. And I wonder, I guess, I don't know if this is a stretch, if if we think of like, um, you mentioned that weaving is the metaphor that the Greeks use for writing, and maybe Penelope is the Hebrew force in the Odyssey, who's every day unweaving what's being woven. Um, right. But my, one of my favorite parts of the book, maybe you could just speak to this just for a moment, in this spirit, is that when you're talking about Proust, you talk about the two paths that go from the house, and they represent polar right. opposite ways of being or um, potential life choices uh, and strata within society, but they ultimately find their opposites within them. It's interesting. I mean, but I wonder if it only works in one direction. Let me think about this. I think you um, only mention it for one of the roads, that one of the roads, you get to the end and you, you're discovering the other one in it. Right. That I mean, the famous thing about, you know, his childhood memory is that when you left his aunt's house in this little country town, you could go either to the left or the right. And one read was the way by Swan's house, which is how the first volume gets its name, Swan's Way, or one was the Mesegliese Way, the way that, uh, uh, or the other was the Guermant Way, the one that went by the grand uh, place of the great aristocratic family. And only in adulthood does he realize that it's actually a, a, a circle and that it doesn't matter which way you go. And I do find that, and 
this is, I'm just paraphrasing Auerbach, as you said, that the Hebrew, I wonder if it goes in both directions. So the, the Hebrew way, the opaque, the leaving out of things, the skipping over things in the narrative, ironically creates more narrative because it leads to interpretative writing. What did he mean by that? What did she mean by that? Why doesn't she explain this? Why doesn't he talk about that? And so that's where the job of the critic begins, which is one of my jobs. So there's a kind of beautiful irony or maybe even circularity that these two modes, which we've been talking about, the Hebrew narrative, the Bible, the Greek narrative, Homer, and everything that derives from each of those are maybe if not leading to the same way, it elaborately interconnected in a way, you know, so to keep the metaphor going, maybe the thing about the Greek narrative is that it's as if the text contains its own critical apparatus, right, through ring composition. In other words, it's invented this technique of endless digression that can sort of tell you everything you need to know about the action within it, which I find very, you know, maybe the reason I like it is because I'm a writer and a critic, you know, and, and in fact, my own texts are both narratives and explications of the narrative through the use of these other texts. Maybe that's why Proust appeals to me. It's as if he's writing his story, but also giving you everything you possibly could use to understand his story. And that's, you know, it's, I'm just going to say, because I thought of it as I said that, that both the Greek and the Hebrew or the classical and the Hebrew are, cult, you know, literary cultures famous for their commentaries. You know, both of these cultures, you already mentioned the Talmud, and there are many other things too, you know, which are endless commentaries on the ultimate text, which is the Torah. Right. So the whole tradition is commentary, you know, and the Greeks also have a very famous and longstanding and millennia long tradition of commentary of which I am a part as a classic scholar. Right. You have this limited set of texts. Very limited, actually. And all we do for a living is talk about them. And of course, the famous question is, can you say anything new about Homer? Um, so somehow, because I think you've raised such an interesting question, you know, this relationship of the Greek to the Hebrew, of the optimistic to the pessimistic, maybe a kind of a, maybe not opposites, maybe not continuous, but a sort of a yin and a yang, mm -hmm. you know, or a, a sort of a deconstructive dynamic, you know, each one needs the other to exist in a way, you know, a, a, Maybe that's somehow it. And I may just because of, and this is just me and who I am temperamentally and intellectually, you know, I like these texts that seem to struggle within themselves to answer their own questions, which is the Greek and the digressive mode. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly, I could say, what's appealing to me about Proust and what was in instantly appealing to me about Proust when I first read it before I was thinking about any of this. Well, in the spirit of your book, I'm going to take a digression, another digression outside of it again, because I think when we think about your writing life in terms of ring composition, 
I start seeing ring composition everywhere, not just with Cavafy outside of the book or the three interwoven sections in, in an odyssey, the, the classroom, the cruise, and the hospital um, about you and your father. Um, but you've also talked about how this digressive circular mode of storytelling, you originally encountered it through the stories of your grandfather, and it was a technique that for a long time you thought that he had invented yeah. That, that your original interest in Homer rather than the Hebrew Bible was because you recognized the way your grandfather told stories. So that, in other words, um, your grandfather, who came from an Orthodox Jewish family in Poland, is the inadvertent reason you preferred pagan texts to Jewish texts. Yeah. Um, but but thinking of your book, The Lost, I was also thinking of the way you, you interspersed the search of your for your family's lost stories with passages from Genesis. And this feels also like three rings because we get three commentators. We get the most famous commentator of all, the medieval French rabbi, Rashi. We get commentary from a contemporary rabbi. And then the third ring is you, who more often than not is weighing in on which of the two in this specific instance is more convincing. But sometimes you add your own unique commentary yourself most movingly, I think, about the story of Lot's wife. Yeah. But but I but it just gets me thinking about, could we find ring composition in the Hebrew also? Not just in your grandfather, not just in the way that you organize this, this um, three-part commentary in, in The Lost, but I like think of the Torah scroll itself, which is circular. Yeah. It's unscrolled over the course of one year, a yeah. full circle of the earth around the sun, and then it's rolled up again and then unscrolled again for another year. Or even the way time unfolds in the Hebrew calendar. I mean, originally there were four Jewish New Year's, four circles, and there are three that we still celebrate today. And And it's weird, like the Rosh Hashanah, the birth of the earth, and the renewal of the soul is the so-called head of the year, and yet mysteriously it's not the beginning of the calendar. And then there, there's the new year of the trees when the sap begins to rise in the trees before anything visible is changed in the heart of winter. And the new calendar year, which is the exodus from Egypt and the birth of a people. Mm-hmm. And these aren't in your book explicitly commented on, but but I was surprised how when you talked about your, you talk about your interest in the tree in the Garden of Eden and Lost the tree at the center of the Garden of Eden and how it represented in your mind both the pain and the pleasure of knowing things. Um, but I was surprised you didn't connect this to rings. You say in, in The Lost, as a child I always wondered why a tree and not a rock or a bird. As an adult I realized it had to do with time, the time it requires to obtain knowledge and the effect time has on ordering and separating knowledge. And of course, while you don't say it, though I'm guessing you're thinking it, the tree records time and its own time in rings. Or as Alice Oswald would say, time itself is part of a tree's singularity. Um, and I wonder if that sparked any thoughts for you, because I mean, this, I mean, this is an endless rabbit hole, right? Like we could, I, I'm sure I could just keep, finding rings if I want to, if I look for rings. But. I, I wish I'd talked to you while I was writing the laws. I would have had many better ideas, I think. I mean, not the least of which, which I did not think about. You're generous to assume I did, but I did not. 
you know, that idea that a tree is composed of rings famously, I mean, even children know that, you know, and it, as a marker of time. Um, I mean, certainly there's a kind of circularity or the, uh, maybe that's not quite the right word. I wanna say a, a sort of a notion of recurrence that runs through the Hebrew Bible, both in, in large and small ways. I'm hardly a biblical scholar, so I'm gonna preface everything I say with that. Um, you know, these sort of motifs that that really are light motifs as the arc of the Torah stories evolves. You know, this this why I actually one I do talk about, I think in the lost, you know, this recurrent motif of the youngest, the younger son or the youngest son always triumphing, which is a, a counterintuitive, uh, certainly in comparison to other kinds of myths. Um, you know, and um, people have, you know, I think I analyzed this motif of the ark, uh, you know, babies being saved, you know, deaths of the firstborn, you know, there are many elements that people have analyzed, which, which despite its apparent uh, gaps and opacities, you know, gives a sort of compositional unity to the many stories told in the Hebrew Bible. And I, I wasn't so much, I don't think my own thinking about circularity, optimism, pessimism, and narrative were developed enough while I was writing The Lost, which remember I was writing now 20 years ago, um, more than 20 years ago when I was working on that book. Um, and I wish I'd thought about the, the you know, it was, as you say, there's a certain point where I'm talking about the tree of life and what that the tree of knowledge and what that means. Why is knowledge a tree? Um, and I talk about trees actually in some of my other books, and especially in my first book, because I was obsessed with a relative of mine whose tombstone took the form of a tree, which I thought was very interesting. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I think, look, this is talk about time and evolution. <laughs> you know, if I could write now the books that I wrote before with what I know now, they would be different books. But then here we come back fortuitously or not, to a point with which we began, which is about writers, their careers, and their evolution, you know, in that sense, I mean, it's a sort of weirdly grandiose thing to say, but I'll only say it because you said it first, you know, I think that the, I think that three rings for me represents a sort of both a culmination and a departure, I think, uh, you know, it's certainly because it, it braids considerations that I've dealt with from my first book on together. And it does move between Homer and the Holocaust and family history and world history and all these things we've been talking about. But of all the books I've written, it, it this sounds a weird thing to say because I always tell people your books are like your children. You know, you know exactly what's great about them and exactly what's wrong about them, but you love them anyway. Um, I think this book most perfectly expresses what I wanted to do in the best possible form. I do. I'm very happy with this book because it, it says everything, no more and no less, that I wanted to say about these very dense, complicated subjects in the maybe the purest form. Mm. You know, The Lost is digressive. You know, some people thought overly so. Uh, 
because to some extent I was mimicking my grandfather's voice. You know, I talk a lot about, look, I would say if I were a critic writing about my, my oeuvre, or if you want to call it that, over the years, both in these four narrative nonfiction books and in my critical writing too, you know, I would say, you know, my great interest, even though the subjects look different, family history and sexuality, the Holocaust, the Odyssey, fathers and sons, literary techniques. What I'm always worrying about is what can a story do? You know, how, how do we tell stories to each other? What, what we want them to contain? What work we think they ought to be doing? How they are shaped? how they are shaped both consciously and unconsciously. I'm already worried about that in my first book, The Elusive Embrace, which I wrote in the mid nineties and published in 1999, which actually ends, although it's about me and me as a gay man and desire and literature and becoming a parent and all kinds of things. Ultimately, what it's really about is the influence of the family story I just mentioned this this great aunt of mine who died tragically young and this and who has this tombstone shaped like a tree cut down and the influence of that narrative that tragic narrative on my own thinking about many things family history desire and the fact that it turned out not to be true what i was told about this so i was already worrying in that book in which my grandfather is first introduced about you know, what does it mean for a story to be true? As we know, stories can be true in different ways. The obvious cliche is fiction, which is stuff that did not happen, is not true in that elemental way, but is, you know, good fiction is true in a different way because it says things that are true about the world. So that is something I was already worried about. And I think my grandfather is the great figure in my life of the great storyteller. And of course, in that sense, he bears a lot in common, although I did not know this when I was four years old listening to him talk, <laughs> with Odysseus, who's another famous storyteller. And if I may say, another famous bullshitter who twisted the facts to suit his needs in each situation. We know that he famously tells a series of stories which are sort of modeled on reality, but also take great liberties when it suits him. So I would say that my subject is narrative. It's been a slight source of frustration to me that when you're a nonfiction writer, you know, people read you and critics certainly write about you attuned to the subject rather than I would put it the theme, you know? So I think the theme of all these books is narrative and storytelling. The most recent one, which we're talking about today at a very patent overt level, you know, it is a book about narrative. It has narrative in the freaking title, you know, I mean, yeah. just in case you missed the point. <laughs> um, I think I've been worrying about narrative from the beginning as someone who learned about narrative from a natural storyteller, you know, not an educated, my grandfather is not an educated person through no fault of his own, but was a brilliant storyteller and that raises questions. So it raised questions in a different way in the Holocaust book, which is, I think people understood this, which is really about orality. You know, here I am running all over the world, tracking down these 12 survivors from this one small town, asking them to tell me stories about my relatives who did not survive. 
and then having to evaluate that, right? And I, I very overtly in that book worry not only about the truth or distortions or distortions of memory that may influence what they told me, but my own ability to then retell it and my own right to retell it. So that's a book that you could say, oh, well, that's a Holocaust book. But again, I think it's really a book about what you can say about the Holocaust more than it is about the Holocaust. In fact, the smartest thing that was said about that book when it came out, which is already, what, 2006, was this is not a book about the Holocaust. This is a book about how to write a book about the Holocaust. And I thought that was very canny. So I think these things are all, you know, they're very stimulating to me. And, and as we all know, you know, just to make an obvious point, we're living in a world in which the power of narratives, true, false, deliberately false, accidentally false, you know, is something of vital importance in our lives. And we, that is our existential struggle now, right? You know, how do you know when something's true and how do you tell it to people and will they believe it? So I think these are rather urgent points, you know. Well, let's spend a little bit of time with representation in the form of, of models and memorialization, because it feels like that's another way a lot of this can be connected. Um, right. In the Lost, Lot's wife, in a way, becomes, in your view, a monument, one made out of tears, a monument to grief and departure. In your Kavafi lecture, you said the role of the poet is to recuperate those things lost to time. And in speaking about Three Rings, you said that rings are particularly good form for writers dealing with what is lost. The actual thing has disappeared, and all you can do is model or represent it by circumambulating the absence. This feels like it enters the book in many ways. Auerbach creating a model of Europe as he's absented from it. There's the question of Racine's representation of the temple in one of his theatrical productions in your book. But most poignantly, you visit the models of many different synagogues in the Jewish diaspora in a museum in Tel Aviv, many which I presume are in reality gone, um, or, or maybe the, they're there and the active Jewish communities are gone. Um, mm -hmm. And you say in all of your five years of traveling the globe for writing The Lost, it was when you were before the models, before the representations, not out in the world with the survivors that you cried. Um, and you talk about the impulse to create replicas having a poignant paradox, the belief, on the one hand, the belief in our ability to recreate and the acknowledgement that the original has been lost, um, which again, I think, I mean, we could endlessly make this about Greek and Hebrew, but, but talk to us about models and memorialization as it relates to this book a little bit more for us. Well, thank you. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, I think it's an important part of the book, although it, it's a, a sort of a leitmotif that I don't lean too heavily on, but I think the astute reader understands the issue that's represented. So I mentioned this model room in the, uh, the Tel Aviv uh, History Museum, which had such a great effect on me, as I said, because 
to have a room full of models of synagogues around the world is an implicit acknowledgement that the, the originals either are not standing or are not being used for the purposes that they were built. Um, and that becomes an important leitmotif for a number of reasons. So, you know, as a person who's written a large book about the Holocaust, uh, this absence versus presence thing haunts me a lot. And I actually talk about the synagogue of which there is no model in my family's town in what was Eastern Poland and is now actually in Western Ukraine, uh, about an hour's drive from Lviv, which of course is a city that's been in the news a lot lately. Um, and after the war, when there were no Jews left in this town, for obvious reasons, it became a the seat of the leather workers union. And I don't even know what it's used for now. And this sort of poignancy of history of buildings, you might say, becomes, to return to your point, David, a, a sort of a leitmotif that crosses the Hebrew-Greek divide. And then, you know, at one point I talk about how, as I, as a nerdy kid already bitten by the classics bug, was always making models of the Parthenon in the basement of our suburban house on Long Island to the point that the table that I worked on is still referred to in my family because my mom still lives in the house we grew up in as Athena's table, you know. Mm. Uh, people will say, oh, go put that on Athena's table. And I think <laughs> visitors to our house so are rather great. be, you know. And, but the Parthenon itself, which I talk about because it's interestingly implicated in the histories that I'm discussing in my, in this book, not least, the endless conflicts between Islam represented by Istanbul and the West um, is itself a building that has generated many models, literal and figurative, but also does, didn't necessarily have the uses that it was built for. And as I always like to tell people, it was actually a church, a Christian church for longer than it was a temple of Athena, which is what it was ostensibly built to be. So thinking about the fates of buildings is a kind of metaphor for the fates of civilizations, which is something else that's at the heart of this new book. And you know, you yourself referred to one of the most poignant examples that I used, which is Auerbach writing his great opus about the greatness of European literature, you know, has to write this book, not in Europe, but in Istanbul, because Europe is tearing itself into pieces. You know, I think this is sort of a terribly poignant irony behind that. So models becomes one of those motifs that I develop in this book and that, you know, both consciously, but also as kept happening, things just kept popping up. So this business, one of the places that I talk about as the subject of many models is the temple of Jerusalem. Solomon's temple, which was destroyed not once but twice, uh, famously. And it just so happens, and this is one of those coincidences, that a central theme of one of Sebald's books that I discuss in the Auerbach section of my book, in fact, the book that's called The Rings of Saturn, as if you couldn't get it any better, um, is an Englishman who spent decades trying to make a perfect scale model of the Temple of Jerusalem. Yeah. 
And he becomes a sort of figure, I believe, in my interpretation of that book, which is maybe the most digressive and the most wandering of all of, of uh, Zabel's books. About, I think it's a, it's a figure of representation itself that, you know, try as we do, and here we get back into our optimistic versus pessimistic problem, you know, as minutely detailed as we try to be, no act of representation can ultimately equal reality. And I think that's why, so at a certain point in this narrative, the, the, the nameless narrator goes to visit this friend who for 20 years has been working on a model of the Temple of Jerusalem. And, this, and here I think we're very much in the territory of the pessimistic, that the builder who's a former pastor says that it's a sort of, what do you call that Zeno's paradox? You know, the closer he comes to finishing it, the, the farther he is from actually being able to achieve total representative, representative perfection because as each new archeological article is published with new details, he has to keep stopping and adjusting, you know? And so it, it seems obvious to me that this model becomes a, a figure of the thing we've been talking about since we started talking in different ways, which is how do we represent reality? Mm. Which is of course the title of our box book right? The representation of reality in Western literature. What does it mean to try to represent? So models are like books. One could say, like the models I was building, the model of the metropole, the incredibly detailed, you know, four foot by 12 foot model of the Parthenon that was in the lobby, in the coat room of the Metropolitan Museum of Art when I was growing up. And I used to force my father to drive me in so I could stand there looking at it. You know, these are all attempts to show you what something looks like, which is literally what representation means, you know, to present it again in a different form. And that is why in Three Rings, I keep circling back to different kinds, the models I made, the models of the, in the Israeli museum, the model in Auerbach's novel, the model, you know, all these different things. And one kind of model, which I hint at, is a memorial. It's a different kind. It's, 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 a, it's a representation of something, as it were, by absence, you know, by, by forcing you to think about something that's not there mm -hmm. because it died. And in fact, uh, just to quickly finish this thought, because you introduced this idea of centers and peripheries, which is inherent in our in our Kavafian drawing, right? The circle with the dot in the middle is itself alludes to the tension between the circumference and the center, right? That I describe, and this is how I work the lost and the Holocaust into this new book. When I went to visit the memorial to Belzets, which strikingly and not coincidentally, you know, takes the form of a a circumnavigation. So there's the site of this death camp and the gas chambers, but you don't go in it, you walk around it. And I was very taken by that as if to experience the immensity of this thing, you have to circumnavigate it. And as you walk the walkway, the name of each town that had a transport to Belzets is in metal letters affixed to the walkway. So you're literally walking around it, but it again, it gets at that both Kavafian and Hebrew problem that you can, you can keep traveling, but you can't get there. 
which is also metaphorically the problem of representation, ultimately. Well, and it makes me think a lot about how quickly politics is involved in questions of memory and modeling and memorialization. So elsewhere, as you've referred to, you've written about the restoration of the Parthenon, which you, you say is a structure similar to the Second Temple of Jerusalem. It's built to replace a previously destroyed structure to begin with. But also, as, as you also say, it was used for many things over 2,000 years. It was a church, but it was also a mosque with its own minaret. Um, so when it's destroyed in the 17th century and then rebuilt in the 19th, the question of what to rebuild it as isn't an entirely empty question or obvious one. Or I mean, innocent one. Or innocent one. It's ultimately restored as part of a nation-building project, unsurprisingly, to enshrine a certain image of that Greece wanted to have of itself. But that makes me think of all sorts of monuments. Like I think of how the Roman Colosseum was built with the looted riches of the Temple of Jerusalem, or how we learned just recently in the New York Times that the Eiffel Tower was built from the money that France took um, from Haiti, that it extorted from Haiti from for its lost property, which the lost property being the, the newly freed slaves who have, right. who have revolted successfully to create a, a black republic in the Caribbean. That there are all of these erased stories behind all of these these monuments. So here we have Eiffel Tower, the iconic image of of France having this this other story, which made me think of this mesmerizing and equally horrifying article that I read in in Jewish Currents called "The Many Oblivions of Baba Yar" by Linda Kinsler, and it, and it's about these various attempts to memorialize the site of the Baba Yar massacre in Ukraine, which was a ravine where 33,000 Jews were murdered in a two-day period, and overall 150,000 people over the course of Nazi occupation were murdered in the ravine. And it's been memorialized in simultaneously in many incongruent ways. Um, mm -hmm. So it's this weird hodgepodge. Uh, and yet one of uh, the people wanting to do something different a person who was shocked by the sight of people drinking beer there walking their dogs mountain biking playing paintball because of his horror around this he wanted to do something very different and and for me he had the most horrifying solution which was an almost live action virtual reality game that would put you in the experience of what it would like to be there in one subject position or another um but even though I hate, I, I hated his answers to the problem. I felt very connected to his diagnosis of the problem around memorialization. Where yeah. when he says the following, this is what he says: When I started to walk there, I immediately got it. This is a sacred, dangerous, raped place. This soil and this land is a holy land. You cannot change it. You can only respect it. Um, and then he had, he talks about how he read that the trees growing over the site of the mass grave were distinct from others on the terrain, that nature had made its own quiet memorial to the murdered. Mm. And he continues by saying, for me, this place is a body. What can you do with a body? And then he nods at the ring on the journalist's finger and says, you have a ring on your hand, but you didn't cut your finger. 
sort of suggesting that somehow there was a way to respect it on its own terms to preserve the finger while memorializing the finger. Um, and here, uh, here again with a, a ring, but I'm, th- but I'm thinking about your deep freeze piece on the Parthenon, which you write about in relationship to the nine 11 Memorial. Also, um, one is a memorial and one's a restoration, but I guess I wondered if it's, if it, sparked any more thoughts i mean because here we are with the i think something about the rupture a rupture that defies language or maybe it's more powerful at least for this person who's seen the way the memorials being used as a park even as it's over memorialized maybe it's more powerful to respect it as it is and and walk around its edges well that's what i thought and i was very i went when I was on my final research trip to uh, Ukraine and Poland for the loss, which was in uh, actually July uh, of 2005, so 17 years ago this month, they had just finished this Belzec Memorial. And I was very moved and touched by the fact that it gestured towards the the unapproachability you know, something I harp on quite a lot, as you know, in the lost is the limits of representation, you know, that, that the people whose sufferings I was writing about, you know, suffered things that we literally can't imagine, we can only imagine them from other representations, you know, what you've seen in movies, what you've seen in documentaries, but we cannot actually imagine them. And I wonder, you know, maybe we shouldn't be able to imagine them. And you know, to continue a thought you started on, um, you know, about the obscenity of this place of memorial being a park where people enjoy themselves, you know, there are, you know, notoriously, there are certain memorials that have become just that. And, you know, these raise very thorny questions, and I'm not going to claim to have answers, because, you know, after all, I've gone for picnics in cemeteries as people regularly used to do in the 19th century, you know. So is that a desecration? I don't know. So who am I to say you can't have a picnic lunch in Bobby Yar? I don't know, you know, I mean, but they're very complicated. You know, where's the line, in other words? I remember being very offended, and I actually wrote about this in The Lost, that at a certain point, I don't know if it's true anymore, but at at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, you know, there was a point where you could enter a cattle car, you know, and I think that's very problematic. I thought so at the time, you know, so you go inside the cattle car and what are you supposed to get out of that? That you quote unquote, know what it was like to be in a cattle car? No, you don't know what it was like because those people were going into gas chambers and you're gonna go to the cafeteria to have the Asian chicken salad. You know, I think what we're both talking about ultimately comes back to this issue of representation and reality the gap, you know, sometimes the model can only be a model. When you mistake the model for the reality, you're in very difficult ethical territory, I think. You know, notoriously in the gay community, there's actually a funny website where this guy has posted pictures that apparently in Berlin, a lot of guys who go on Grindr and these sex apps photographs themselves at the Holocaust Memorial. You know, so they're using... (laughs) I mean, you can't make this up if I may quote myself, right? You know, so here they are trying to get laid, you know, with pictures taken in front of the Holocaust Memorial. And the name of the website 
which is darkly humorous, is they did not die in vain, you know. So these are very complicated questions. And I don't pretend to have the answers, but I can only talk about my discomfort with this or that issue. And to come back to a point I was making before that, you know, how all of my books are ultimately about narrative and what we do with it and what it what its nature is and its uses. I worried a lot in The Lost about my own role in this process. What does it mean to paraphrase other people's tales of trauma? Do I have a right to to describe them? Do I have a right to try to reconstruct the day of my great uncle's death? Is that something I'm allowed to do? You know, this book, which itself purports to be an act or an, an attempt at an accurate reconstruction of the lives and deaths of my six relatives, how far short of that goal does it fall? Very, I would say, you know, and that's a problem of narrative is it presents itself holistically. You know, here is the story of X. But I know it's not the story of X. It's a kind of a fragment of a story you might be able to talk about X. So these things are worrying. And particularly for reasons that I think are almost cliche at this point, it's a great subject of concern for us now. Look, here I'm going to talk as a classicist. You know, Plato was worried about this. Yeah. Plato was already worried about art. You know, when you can make a very good picture of something, will it ultimately have epistemological and ultimately ethical and moral consequences? What, what happens when people start mistaking the picture for reality? There's certainly a lot of that going around right now. Well, let me ask you about that anxiety around mistaking the model for reality in relationship to Zabald. Um, Whereas you say that Homer's rings are designed to illuminate and enact the hidden unity in things, you say that Zabald's rings are designed to confuse and entangle with trajectories that lead to disillusion and defeat. That is, circling leads to a series of locked doors for which there are no keys. That perhaps in the spirit of the Hebraic mode, his, his theme is the failure of narrative. And I wanted to ask you about Zabald in this light, about the failure of narrative, because as you just did frame the lost and as you frame the lost elsewhere, of being less about the Holocaust and more about the anxiety of narrative, more about when what actually happened gets replaced by the story of what happened, maybe irrevocably. Um, when you were in conversation with James Wood, he started in a strange place, I thought, wondering why there were no footnotes in your book when so many things, if it had been an academic book, would be citable. And you answered that you wanted the book to be conversational. And he feels like your choice preserves a certain purity of movement, even a purity of music within Three Rings. And I'd add that you finished reading the book as a reader with a wealth of potential writers to explore, that the material from which your book arises still feels manifest in a, in a broader sense, to me at least. But I wondered about your thoughts regarding the recent Zabald revelations. Um, as someone, I mean, I, I greatly admire his work. I know you do. Um, but to learn that the whole arc of the fictional Austerlitz's life as well as many of its smaller details, is not only taken from a real Jewish woman's life, Susie Beckhofer, but also from her published memoir, 
where she describes her kinder transport experience, but taken without attribution, that and an attribution that she sought, an acknowledgement where she writes an op-ed in, in the London Times called Stripped of My Tragic Past by a Best-Selling Author, or that many other people's lives that were appropriated without attribution in Zabel's work were also resentful of how they were portrayed. One Jewish painter whose life found itself in his work called it a narcissistic enterprise. And the author of the New Yorker article says, the author's deep, even hypnotic identification with his subjects, what Angier calls his imaginative sympathy, might also be called theft or German plunder. Um, and I, I guess I wondered, because of this very different subject position than you, you as a descendant of Holocaust survivors looking to recover your family stories versus a non-Jewish German writer both being positioned and positioning himself as the conscience of his country in some regards, if he owes more to his sources than to the purity of movement in his texts, the aesthetic qualities of his books, um, if he has a different responsibility to the material he took, Jewish material that that takes what really happened and makes a different story from it. I, I wondered if you had thoughts about that. I mean, not about whether he's an amazing writer, but I guess it becomes an ethics of memorial and archive and memorialization and monuments mm -hmm. and ruptures and erasure. Right. No, it's an interesting question, David, and a very difficult one. I I I haven't read the uh, Zabel biography, although I, I am aware of the controversies that you refer to. I, I, I'm not going to... I'm going to make a sort of blanket statement about what I felt. I, I don't know if you remember, but something else, there was something weirdly parallel about a woman who was com complained because her, she had a story. This is sort of a big thing on the internet, maybe six months ago. A woman was ill or something, and then she talked to her friend about it, and the friend ended up writing a book or an essay or a poem or publish something. It may be more useful to think about that example because it's not freighted by these radioactive, you know, subject matter like the Holocaust, which is so radioactive that it makes it hard to look at. You know, it's like trying to read something on a very shiny page. Um, you know, and my reaction to that story is, well, you know, if your story is out there, it's available. My my basic feeling, and this is very old fashioned, is that art trumps everything. You know, at the end of the day, and this may be because I'm a classicist, you know, the stuff I look at is so old, nobody remembers any of the details, any of the hurt feelings, you know, what crazy mother Euripides may or may not have based the Medea on, you know, all we have is the product, which is great literature. And I feel that ultimately trumps every other consideration. Um, I have to, I don't, I can't speak specifically to this Able thing because I, I need to read the book and look exactly about what the details were. And, you know, but the fact is at the end of the day that to put it crudely, you know, Zabel's novels are great novels, I think by any reasonable measure that will do their work irrespective of the details of him, his sources, whatever, for generations and centuries to come. And 
you know, that's the story of the history of literature <laughs> that, you know, the minds of great writers take stuff that's out there and they turn them into useful products. And a story I used to tell at the, when I was, this came up in a slightly different key when I was touring, when, when The Lost was published and I was on a very extensive book tour and I was talking to different audiences and I said, look, all of this in 2000 years, because that's a reasonable amount of time to think in if you're a classicist, you know, not a normal person, but a classicist, you know, no one's gonna be reading my book in 2000 years. I can guarantee that if there's a planet, of course, but what culture does and what literature does is it creates useful narratives out of what happened and turns it into the story of what happened, which serves as a cultural function, right? And the example I use, and this may be a sideways way of answering your question, David, is, you know, think of when the exodus from Egypt happened. You know, everyone was writing a memoir, right? You know, how me and my camel and my mother-in-law crossed the Red Sea and it almost closed on us. And But, you know, everyone was publishing memoirs. Everyone had a story to tell. All those individual, those millions, hundreds of thousands, whatever the number of Hebrew slaves, everyone had a story to tell, believe me, believe me. And now there's only one story that's told, which is the Haggadah. There's one story that we tell and it becomes the emblematic story. And in a certain way, it's the only story we need to know. Because we're local and we live our lives locally, it seems unbelievable and offensive to us that individual stories will be erased to be replaced by either the Haggadah or by Zabald's book. Which is not to say there aren't difficult ethical questions because right now that lady's still alive her offense is real, but here, you know, you're in very murky waters and I'm not sure I have the answer to this, but I know that great art trumps everything at the end of the day, whether legitimately or not in, in, in ethical terms. And that's all, you know, that's all that's gonna last. Um, you know, I had a very uncomfortable exchange when the loss was published, the guy I went to high school with is the son of a survivor. I knew them not well. He was really my older brother's friend. And when my book was published, he got in touch with me and he said, oh, you know, his father wanted to write a book and could I help them? And I talked to some people I know and that, you know, and th this happened more than once with many people, as you can imagine, I was contacted by many survivors or children of survivors and how did the, how should they get their book published and blah, blah, blah. One place that will publish all these memoirs is Yad Vashem. But a commercial publisher, you know, the answer that I got from many editors was, there's a lot of these stories, unfortunately, you know, and not everyone wants to read every one, right? And so that may be a different way of framing, you know, are they important locally? Absolutely, because every voice of witness is important, but, that's a historical consideration, not an aesthetic consideration, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a very complicated, a very complicated question. And of course, in Zabel's case, as you rightly point out, it's complicated by the fact that the great artistic storyteller happens to be a German. You know, so it's, you know, as it were, quote unquote, even worse, right? <laughs> but yeah. C'est la vie. He, you know, here we're in a familiar territory in a different way, which is, you know, about Wagner. 
even Germans, even anti-Semitic Germans make great art that a lot of Jews enjoy. Go figure that one. But I think at a certain point, you just have to acknowledge that that's the amazing dissolving power of very great art is it does dissolve these considerations for better or for worse. And I'm not necessarily sure it's better in every case, but it's a, it's a thorny one. But I wanna bring it back to the lost, not to my book, but to a story someone told me, which may be a good way to round this out, which is one of the survivors from, there turned out to be 12 that I tracked down over a course of five years who had known my relatives. This was 20 years ago. They were then in their mid to late eighties. They're now all dead. And she famously had never told anyone her story. And she didn't tell me either. No one knew how she survived. Everyone else was very free with telling me their tales of what happened to them, how they had managed to survive, where they had hidden, where they had, you know, blah, blah, blah. She never said anything. She had ended up in Australia uh, where I interviewed her. And she said, I'm happy to talk about your family and what I know about them, but about my own experience, I refuse to speak. I imagine it was very traumatic in ways that are not hard to imagine if you're a teenage girl trying to get by in those times. And she said something so interesting to me, which I think speaks to the heart of this in different ways. She said, my story is no different from the story of lots of girls. It's not gonna make a difference if you have one less story as part of this. It's exactly what happened to many girls like me. And I, I, of the many things I heard, during my research and my travel, that lingers maybe the longest in my mind because it goes to the heart of this problem. You know, because the Holocaust is, so to speak, still a recent event. You know, there are still people alive who were either victims, bystanders, or indeed even perpetrators who were actually alive, not for long, but you know, it feels unimaginable to us because we do live life locally that one story will never be told. It also anguishes our particular sensibility as you know, information age people in which everything is recorded and shared and you know, processed infinitely. And yet in a way it speaks to the reality of what I was sort of jokingly referred to about the Exodus. You know, everyone did have a story and none of them are known anymore, except in the broad contours. And the broad contours are what allow us to think about an event. We were slaves and then we were free. That's basically the story of Exodus, you know. I was so frustrated because I was the writer writing this book and she represented one twelfth of what it is possible to know, of what it was possible to know in the entire planet at that moment about the events I was interested in that no one will ever know. And yet I think in a larger sense, she was right. You know, there's very little that isn't known about the Holocaust at this point. Will one girl's story make a difference in the grand scheme of things? No. Well, in the... In the spirit that would of be pessimistic, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, in the spirit of knowing things, I, before we end, I would like people to hear a little bit from the book. 
A stranger reaches an unknown city after a long voyage. The journey has been winding and full of complications. The stranger is tired. He approaches at last the building that will be his home from now on and perhaps with a little sigh, begins walking toward it, the final short length of the improbably meandering way that has led him here. Perhaps there are stairs. If so, he mounts them wearily. Or maybe there is an arch through which he vanishes, a small smudge against the gaping darkness, like some character in a myth disappearing into the jaws of a monster. His shoulders are lightly hunched by the weight of the bags he is carrying, the two bags which now are everything he has, apart from the wife and the child. When are they coming? The bags were packed in haste. What to take? What is most precious? One of them likely contains books. Who is he? He is the Greek scholar fleeing Istanbul for Italy in 1453. The Muslim fled from Spain to Istanbul in 1492. The Huguenot running from France to Germany in 1685. The Jew fleeing Germany early in the last century, as so many did as Eric Auerbach did, for instance, in 1936, when he ran from Marburg to, of all places, Istanbul, whose university offered him a refuge, that ornate house with its ravishing views of the sea, where he wrote Mimesis, his hymn to the greatness of European civilization. Or he is a writer 70 years later, who for a while was plunged into helpless despair Aporia, after he spent years researching a book that describes the effects of the cataclysm that swept up Auerbach and, among millions of others, a handful of people living in a small Polish town, some of whom, like the German scholar, tried to escape, although their escape was not successful. A writer who now warily contemplates a new book, a book about a marvelous and charming poem, the Odyssey, which for a brief period he studied with his father, an illuminating experience, a poem which, as we know, once interested Auerbach too, warily contemplates a book about this great masterpiece which, the despairing writer hopes, will spare him having to tell any more of the terrible stories he once had to tell. Or maybe he is another kind of writer, one who wants to get away not from the tales of horrors suffered by the victims, but from the inherited guilt for those horrors, from a past for which he is not responsible, but by which he feels tainted. Maybe he is Winfried Georg Sebald, born in the Gau, the Nazi administrative district of Schwaben in Bavaria in 1944, and therefore, as it were, a guiltless babe when the atrocities that had pushed Auerbach to Istanbul were still taking place. A German who nonetheless felt compelled to leave his country in the 1960s, indeed to leave behind his own father, a man who throughout the Second World War had fought in the Wehrmacht, a division whose motto was Gott mit uns, God with us. Compelled then to leave his native land, not by a royal edict, but by his own sense of claustrophobic shame, this German writer comes to the country of those who defeated his own and finds himself in time 
standing before the door of the Department of European Literature of the University of East Anglia, where he will spend the rest of his too short life writing books about exiles, emigres, about Ausgewanderten, to use the German word, which will indeed be the title of one of his books, Emigrants, people who have been forced to wander outward into the world, just as all those centuries ago, Odysseus was sent reeling through space and time, mala pola plankthe, cast off, set adrift, baffled, balked. In photographs taken of Zebald in his middle age, self-exile seems to have smoothed him out. The plump oval face with its shock of white hair receding from the expansive brow strikes you as both intelligent and quizzical, even comic. The straight graying eyebrows shooting up at a 45 degree angle as if in amusement at some joke you have arrived too late to hear. The dark eyes hooded by the skin of the lids which droop like curtains across the outer corners obscuring most of the whites and leaving only the large dark irises visible. These are, you cannot help feeling, the eyes of someone prone to melancholy. Let us leave them there for now, the two Germans, Auerbach and Istanbul, safely ensconced with his chair in Western languages and literatures and his tortured dream of die gemeinsame Verbindung der Kulturen, the common connectedness of cultures. Zebald standing before the door of the Department of European Literature in East Anglia, wondering what awaits him, as so many millions of others through the millennia have stood and wondered before strange gateways and buildings and doors flung across the globe to these once unimaginable locations, these unlikely places of refuge from the people or merely the memories that are hunting them. We've been listening to Daniel Mendelssohn read from Three Rings, a tale of exile narrative and fate. So as, as a way to end, I'd, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your upcoming translation of the Odyssey. You've, you've said that you've been teaching it since the 1980s, but that having now translated it yourself, it has changed your relationship to it. But I've also loved to hear what what choices guided you? For instance, I think of Emily Wilson's translation note and introduction, which I really love, that situate us with a more complicated version of hospitality, for in instance, the rituals of hospitality that she looks at as a code not only of welcoming but of extending empire. Um, but also she talks about the constraints for herself, that for her it would be the same length, it would have the same number of lines as, as the original, and, and having those constraints, maybe like the constraints you had with Three, three Rings, acted as, as guideposts. So I, I'd be curious, how, how did translating the epic change your relationship to it, but also maybe if you could share some of the choices. All of, I mean, there's, there's so many ways people have chosen that yeah. have been contradictory to each other um, over time. Well, I think, I mean, in, when I was asked to do this by the University of Chicago Press, I, I, who had an editor had read my Odyssey book in which I translated short passages, you know, and had liked what I'd done there. I actually ended up doing something quite different in the final 
version. But in my Odyssey translation, as in my Kavafi translation, I'm particularly attuned to formal elements. Um, so for example, uh, as I mentioned in an earlier conversation we were having, you know, repetition is a very marked uh, feature of Homeric style. Epithets, whole lines, whole passages are repeated, repeated verbatim. And I, I believe that has both an, an aesthetic and a literary effect of great importance. So unlike many translators, I keep the repetitions almost, I would say, 99% of the times, you know, Athena is always the goddess of the bright owl eyes, because that's what she is in the Greek text. And I think, you know, the, the Odyssey is a very old remnant of an archaic culture, and part of the archaism makes itself feel felt in these formal elements, the repetitions, the stiffness of the repetitions, I think is a good thing. Many people don't do that. I honestly can't remember what Emily does, but I know that, for example, a translation that I admire a lot, uh, Lombardo, Stanley Lombardo, uh, in each instance when one of these re re repeated epithets comes up, I think he finds a slightly different way of expressing it. But I think that's something I do. I've also found a much longer line, you know, par part of the grandeur, the, the heft of both the Iliad and the Odyssey reside in the fact that it's the longest line of, one of the longest lines of verse that Greek knows about, an 18 syllable line that's very long. And I think, you know, the standard line is that the English equivalent of that Greek line is blank verse, the iambic pentameter we know from Shakespeare and, and lots of poetry. And that is in fact what Emily Wilson used. The more I think about it, the more I think that's not the right way to go about it because you necessarily, especially if you're doing a line by line translation, which I also do, my, my lines, I have exactly as many lines as Homer does. But the dactylic hexameter in Greek is an 18, potentially 18 syllable line in a language that's much more condensed and can say a lot more with fewer words than English can. Whereas the iambic pentameter line is a 10 syllable line. So it's almost half as long in a language that needs more energy to say the same amount of stuff as Greek. So inevitably you're gonna be compressing if you're getting line for line and, and Emily Wilson does that. And as do many other people of necessity. And sometimes that can be a good thing or an attractive thing, but part of, you know, look, every translator when working on something has an idea of what that author that you're translating sounds like and feels like. I'm going to say feels like is even more important. You know, what does Homer feel like? And I'm trying to put on the page what the Odyssey feels like to me, you know, and part of the feeling resides in its archaisms. Um, I don't try to translate things away, you know, um, I don't try to account for or correct Homer's bad attitudes that we don't like anymore because we're so much more enlightened than the Greeks were. Um, you know, I, it is what it is. It's a document of a, of a primitive era by a culture, many if, if not most of whose attitudes we would find abhorrent today. Um, 
And that's, you know, that's what it is, take it or leave it, you know. You know, but mostly for me, as I say, it's about the feel of it. You know, the, the epic line is a long line and it has a kind of grandeur that I think it's possible to reproduce in a long English line. So it took me a very long time to sort of work out a, an English line of verse that felt sort of natural to speak or to read aloud, you know, that got that sense of importance that the long original line has. Um, but, you know, it's just one approach. I'm not unlike many people writing today because we have access to social media. I'm not an agonistic translator. I don't think it's, you know, my way or the highway or everyone else was wrong or, you know, I think any honest translator knows that you learn from every other translation. You're grateful for what people do, even translations you don't like, you learn from, you know, sometimes because it tells you what to do correctly, but sometimes I don't think there's any translation which you can wholly dislike. Everyone has a good idea about something. And I know it's now popular to sort of hash things out in social media about your opinions about everything, but I just am always happy to have all these other translations to look at, to think about, you know, I think it's a collaborative venture ultimately, because here I'm going to end actually with the thing about models. As we know, no representation, as we know, no representation, which is to say a representation of something, and that obviously includes translation, can ever be equal to the original. You have to acknowledge that going in. So all this business of, you know, my translation is the perfect translation and this is the only way to do it and everyone else is wrong. I just think that's preposterous. You know, you want an idea of what the Odyssey is, was like in Greek, read every translation and start triangulating and you'll start. <laughs> and that's the beginning of the sense of what the Odyssey is like. Well, it was a pleasure having you on Between the Covers today, Daniel. Likewise, it was a great joy to talk to you. And I, I thank you for such interesting ideas, which I will now ponder um, <laughs> I, uh, to my great benefit, I'm sure. We've been talking today to Daniel Mendelssohn, the author of Three Rings, A Tale of Exile, Narrative and Fate. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift, home office of me, David Naiman. More of Daniel Mendelssohn's work can be found at danielmendelssohn.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider joining the community of Between the Covers listener supporters who are ensuring the future of in-depth conversations like these. Supporters help shape who to invite next. They get resource-rich emails with each episode. And there are many other things. Collectibles offered by past guests. Bonus audio contributions from everyone from Alice Oswald to our new U.S. Poet Laureate, Ada Limon. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at 
tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapati to Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>